to start it. So with those two things on our mind, I want to get to Mary's question, um, her comment about her daughter and her daughter's response to her and her Catholic faith, um, even though that may not seem directly related to brothers. And the second concern, um, how we get from Brothers Karamazov to Solzhenitsyn in just a generation. Um, my contention is there's something socialistic going on in Russia and um, it'll explain how we turn the page and get to Solzhenitsyn, but it means looking at brothers with that question in mind. So, Shakespeare's poem. <clears throat> I want to read the third poem and I just want to make this one comment and then let the poem stand on its own the way I've been trying to do. Sonnet 129 was one of the first poems in my early experiences. I described them to you when I went to UC Berkeley and could not understand poetry at all and this is one of the early poems that I that I put in that same time period. It's an interesting sonnet because it's unlike all the other sonnets in this one respect. Shakespeare does not give us an image of lust. He doesn't show a couple lusting or a man doing something or a woman. What he's doing is defining lust. So it's, it's as a sonnet it's strange. We're not getting an individual person struggling with something or a description of a scene the way we would in a narrative or drama. We're getting a definition. But what's interesting about this sonnet is if you listen to the poem, the poem itself enacts lust. I'll say that again. It enacts lust. If you watch the poem, you can, you can see the way he's presented things is to line them up so they're in constant conflict with one another. So as you read the poem, you're made to feel that's lust. That's exactly what it is. And the conclusion he comes to is appropriate. It's absolutely perfect as an expression of what he's just described, okay? So, sonnet 129. So, remember, he's defining something. That's not what he generally does. Usually he gives different examples of something and then makes a conclusion. Here he's actually defining what lust is, but in a way that expresses its conflict, its inner torment, and then makes a conclusion, okay? Sonnet 129. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. See how those lines run on? The poetic term is called enjambment. The lines run on. They don't stop at the end of the line or pause. They go on. So rhetorically, we're supposed to keep going. There's a a thrust, a rush here. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. See how that line carried over? There's no pause. In a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is, there it is again. We can't pause at the end of that line. Is everybody following me? This isn't a course in poetry, but I want, I want you to have some sense of what's going on. So lust needs a predicate. So we can't pause at the end of the line, we're being made to rush on. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, 
Lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, bang, 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 bang. Enjoyed no sooner, but despise it straight. One thing against another. Enjoyed no sooner, but despise it straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallowed bait. On purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having and in quest to have extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed behind a dream. Did you see the way he set those lines up in balance, in opposition, one thing and then it's opposite, one thing and it's opposite, one thing and it's, y'all following? Um, enjoyed no sooner, but despise it straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had. Past reason hated, as a swallowed bait. On purpose laid, to make the taker mad. Mad in pursuit, and in possession so. Had having, and in quest to have, extreme. A bliss in proof, and proved a very woe. Before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Powerful poems. Everybody following? The, and remember this from Dante. Remember the um, siren episode where he looked at the woman, he could not take her, his eyes off of her? And we talked about where did that woman get the control, the power she has over him? It's from Dante. The more he looked at her, the more power she had. The more a man looks at a woman, the more a woman looks at a man in whatever way, the more those emotions are aroused, excited, because we project on them something we want. But no sooner do we have it, then we're full of regrets. We wish we'd not done it. Every sin. Is everybody following? So do you see the way he sets this up beautifully with all these contraries knocking against each other and then comes to this conclusion, all this the world well knows. We all know it, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. No matter how well we know it, we don't know it well enough to shun sometimes that promise that's going to make us miserable. Okay? I'll read it through then. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, until action lust is perjured, murders, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despise it straight, past reason hunted and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallowed bait, on purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having and in quest to have, extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed behind a dream, all this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Okay. I'm going to just quickly um, summarize what we did last week, and then I want to get to Mary's. Um, I hope, hope you're okay with this. I think you'll be. Um, and then I've got a very practical question for all of us. We've said that the great theme of brothers is um, a country undergoing a trial of faith. An old, traditional, pietistic, religious culture 
has come under the influence of all these modern intellectual, rational, 18th century ideas and is finding itself turned on its head. It's set up all these dislocations and disorientations um, and leaving everybody in a disquieted um, uncertainty. And um, I've mentioned that it sometimes I think Fyodor, um, people will read him and find him despicable. He is. But I think if we look at the novel as a whole, it's important that we see that in some ways he focuses the problem. He's an image of a manipian satire. He, his embarrassing truthfulness about things functions to help us see there's something wrong everywhere, even, and we'll see it even now today. <coughs> Sorry, I mentioned this um, weeks ago. Before he leaves the monastery in, the, in those opening scenes, remember he goes in to dinner with the monks and criticizes the monks. Everybody's horrified. With Zosima's death, we're going to see there's a lot to those monks that's not praiseworthy. They're, in lots of ways, awful men. Some, there's a small minority that are really good, but lots of them are not. So as a matter of fact, Fyodor's criticism was in some ways very truthful. Even though when we looked at it, it made us despise him more because he's very critical and he's critical of all these apparently pious people. So we're watching a country undergo a tremendous revolution inwardly and leaving people confused and um, um, dislocated. The novel, from one perspective, is a window looking in on a people undergoing a trial. All the Russians live close to the bone. They wear their hearts on their sleeves, deeply passionate, very intense in their emotions. But interestingly, insofar as the novel is a window looking in, we can also say it's a window looking out. Um, if, we, if we come away from the novel seeing most of the Russians being very passionate people, and they are, um, if we turn the window around, conversely, we can say, in some ways, it's a look at Americans or Westerners in the way they close their hearts, that they deny their emotions. Remember, at the center of C.S. Lewis's abolition of man was this contention that men have lost their hearts. Their, their minds are too much in the control. Remember he said they don't, the, the problem facing us today is to learn to cultivate good emotions not to do away with them. So there's a, um, a double function to what the novel is doing. We've talked about it as manipian in character. It's, it's full of satire. I've pointed out the titles. Remember, A Nice Little Family, when it's the last thing you can say about it is a nice little family. Stinking Lizaveta Smirjikov with a guitar. Titles like that go on. It's also a novel that, um, that has a detective form to it. We read to keep finding out what's going to happen. The central, the central action, it does not concern Alyosha or Zosima. The central action concerns Dmitri. From the beginning, we know from the narrator that Dmitri is the backbone. The whole second half of the novel will focus on Dmitri and what he does and his being arrested and accused of the murder of his father. And it gets blasted through all the local news media then that Russia has got a parasite, or patricide. Parasite. Patricide. Well, both. The, the killing of a father, the murder of a father. 
Of saying? I said it is usually patricide, but this book they call it parasite. Yeah. Um, but the central the central issue is killing a father is like killing off God. You to kill the father is to kill the source of your so it's spread all over Russia. It, the case takes on a, um, a scale that's way out of proportion, but it speaks to something Russian. So the last half of the novel will deal with Dmitri and his fling with Grushenka and what happens when the police come to get him and take him back and he's put in jail. It's a, it's a wonderful scene. You've got to read it. Dostoevsky would have known something about the humiliation because if you read it, you know there's that scene where they undress him. Dimitri to do all this workup stuff on him. It's humiliating. I mean, imagine being called a murderer when you're not, and then being forced to undress and be naked and have people search your body parts. And it's real. I'm, I'm sure Dostoevsky suffered that. Remember when he was arrested and was taken out to be executed. So he knows firsthand those sorts of humiliation. And then um, Dimitri will stand trial and we'll watch two lawyers um, take up this case. And that will focus, I think, one of the central themes of the novel. And that is, how do we look at reason, the power of reason in this Russian people? I, I, cannot, under, I cannot underline that enough. So the detective aspect of the novel is not small, okay? The narrator does all he can to cover his tracks. He's a man of the village. He knows the people. He knows their stories. He's piecing things together. He even makes sure that when we get to the center of the novel, to the Zosimov story, he says he got it from Alyosha's notes. So this is not a narrator we, um, we can't trust. He's doing everything he can to earn our trust so that we will take seriously whatever he's put before us. Last time we did the Grand Inquisitor, remember, and I just want to briefly call to mind that one passage um, in which Ivan and Alyosha are talking over at a restaurant and um, it's the first time the brothers have really had any time to get to know each other. It's just a sign of how broken the family is in the modern world. It's just broken apart. Um, the family ties are not as strong as they once were and brother and brother are having a moment of intimacy that they've not had before and it's during this talk that Ivan makes clear his feelings about life in general because they're going to ultimate questions the most important question is there a God is the soul immortal they're not they're not this is not light dinner conversation these brothers are serious they want to go to ultimate questions is there a God is the soul immortal it picks up the same questions that were asked in the very beginning of the novel about ecclesiastical courts. What do you do when a man's committed a crime? Who's in charge? The church, the state. That was the opening discussion. It's then that Ivan says that he um, hates the world um, and he, he holds adults responsible for their crimes because they're adults. What he can't tolerate is the suffering of innocent kids. And he gives those examples of those babes who were thrown up in the air and caught with bayonets and ripped out of wombs and just the horrible scenes. And then he tells Alyosha of this poem that he's created, The Grand Inquisitor, and 
in that chapter he, he, he tells that story. And in that story, um, Yvonne takes us back to the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the Inquisition in Spain. And during the Inquisition, after a hundred people were executed, Christ arrives and um, performs a couple of miracles and the Grand Inquisitor arrests him. And that night the Grand Inquisitor goes in to visit him and basically he accuses Christ of failing. He says, you did all these things for people but you expected too much of them. And so the Catholic Church has picked up your mistake and is now doing for the people what they don't have the strength to do on their own. He says that um, in the three miracles you performed, remember you were tempted to turn the stones into bread, to throw himself off the temple, to test God, to bow down and worship Satan, and he could rule all the kingdoms. So, and Yvonne says, I think, more powerfully than I've ever heard it said before, he said, nobody could, nobody could have set up those three temptations. Because those, we, we did this when we did apologetics. Because those three temptations define every aspect of our human life. Only a God could have done that. They cover everything. And on page 255, um, he says, um, you wanted men to have freedom and you gave them this, but the condition was that they deal with these three things. He said, there are three powers, only three powers on earth capable of conquering and holding captive forever the conscience of these feeble rebels for their own happiness. These powers are miracle, mystery, and authority. Turning the stones into bread, um, tempting God, doing something so that God has to rescue you to do it, so you're presuming on God, and bowing down to his, um, Satan's authority so he can rule all the kingdom. And to each one of those temptations, Christ said no. And turned all of them, the experience of all of them, over to all human beings. The Catholic Church, insofar as it um, was founded by Christ, had those three conditions in its keep. I'm trying to be as direct as I can. That's our church, in a nutshell. If anybody's got a question, ask it now. Because I'm, it's really interesting. I think I'm going to first principles. And they're the sorts of things most people don't question. Okay? And I'm going to say the Protestant church turned away from the sacraments and half undercut those. What happened in Russia, I'm going to get to because what's happening here is really interesting. But that's Ivan's case, okay? And the Grand Inquisitor is so moved by hearing, um, by arg or presenting this argument. When he's done, remember Christ gets up and kisses him on the mouth. And I think the Inquisitor is so touched by that moment that he lets him go and Christ goes on. So that was the Grand Inquisitor. And one of the questions that I put to you guys last week was what motivates Ivan through the preceding chapter, the rebellion, the chapter called Rebellion, where he talks about these horrible things done to children, the innocent, innocent kids, and the Grand Inquisitor. And I suggested that what underlies both of those chapters is pity, an excessive pity. He's so overcome with pity that it keeps, there's nobody, and remember his challenging question to Alyosha, 
if um, being cruel or punishing one person would make it possible so that everybody else would be freed of suffering, would you do it? That was a great challenge to Alyosha, and Alyosha said no, because in good conscience he couldn't. So Ivan's left with this ugly world in which all this suffering goes on and we're tormented. All of us, I think I could say, all of us would rather that this suffering didn't happen. We'd rather have a better world. So that was the Grand Inquisitor, okay? And it's after that that he goes to um, Grushenka's and, and he'll face a temptation there. Now, I've got a couple of questions before we go to the Zosima thing. Bob, at the end of last class, um, reminded me of the Divine Comedy. I meant to bring it and I forgot today, but um, a couple of things that I just want you to hold on to. Remember that when Alyosha goes to Grushenka's, when she is informed that he just came from Zosima's funeral, she jumps off his lap. She was going to seduce him. She suddenly feels ashamed of herself and um, she admits her shame and Alyosha is overcome with sympathy, admiration for her, and both of them criticize Rakuten because Rakuten wanted to see a seduction take place. He wanted to see Alyosha fall. Even before they got there, he was tempting him about loving God and this is your God and he's just taken um, Zosimov and Zosimov's body is decaying and is giving off a, t a stench because Alyosha was expecting a miracle like lots of people were and when he didn't get it, he began to question his God and the justness of what was happening. So it's, his, it's the beginning of his crisis. When he goes to Grushenka's, part of him is ready to succumb, to give in to whatever she's going to do. And she admits that and Ali is overcome with admiration. And when she sees his response, she feels indebted to him and the two weep together. And, and it's a moment when each of them is the means of salvation for a moment. They turn away from the bad things they were going to do. She said, I, she said, I want to be, what's the word? I want to, I want to be mischievous. I want to commit a bad act. And she stops and she owes that to Alyosha and he owes his change of heart to her. So the two of them have a moment of, of, of sharing a love between them and Rakatan is full of scorn. And they do what they can to get him out. But during that episode, um, it, it leads Grushenka to tell this story of having given an onion. Remember she tells the tale, this old folk tale, of a woman who was a wicked woman, damned, a wicked woman. She's in a, the lake of fire because that's where she deserves to be. But her guardian angel was hoping to save her. So he, he remembered that she had given an onion one time in her life and takes an onion, gives it to her to pull up. She grabs a hold of it and he pulls and says, pull, you know, the weight of it. She, so she's got to help him. But other people in the fiery lake begin to pull on her and drag her down and she kicks them off and she says, it's my onion. And the minute she does that, she's back in the fire lost. That onion is going to come up in Raskolnikov's dream of Zosima at the wedding of Cana, so I want to come back, just hold on to it. But here's where I'm going. So in that image we get an image of an angel of grace 
offering a woman salvation if she will recover a good deed that she'd once done. And Grushenka says in that episode to um, Rakuten, she, um, she gave an onion. That onion was her gift to Raskolnikov of wanting to be good. Alyosha. Or sorry, Alyosha. And Alyosha says the same thing, that he gave an onion. That the two of them shared this gift. So the onion becomes a symbol of having done a good deed. Okay? But we know in the tale that the onion was not enough. Because even though the woman had a hold of it, um, the other people wanted to come up with her and she didn't want to give her life for them. So hold on to that. In Dante, remember when we got to the, the Purgatorio, we, we first met these characters, one of which was, and I got to do it, I don't know if you remember the name, Bob. Um, I can't remember his name. But the, but the man was involved in a battle. He had his throat slit, I think, and he was going off to die. His last breath was Mary. Do you all remember? And the good angel comes just when the bad angel is ready to take the soul away, and he's saved. So that last utterance is enough for Dante to say, if there's a small grace there, even the smallest grace, if a person cries out to God, no matter how bad that person's been, it will be enough to begin penance. Okay? So we've got those two things set against each other. Through the whole of the rebellion chapter and the whole of the Grand Inquisitor chapter, the one thing that motivates Ivan is this excessive, I'm going to call it an inordinate pity. It, he's, he's overcome by it. It drives him and it shapes the way he looks at things. <clears throat> you remember that the greatest temptation Dante faced was pity. When he, when he meets Francisca and she tells the story, he immediately starts to collapse because he feels so... Remember she said, if, the universe, if, only the, if only the God of the universe were our friend. She's indirectly blaming God, you know, and, and her sad story so overcomes Donnie that he passes out. And we saw a number of instances when he was so susceptible to pity that he puts himself at risk. Because to do that is to place himself against God's will to actually side with evil. So we saw the dangers of pity and I said then that it's, remember when we talked about Aristotle and tragedy, pity and fear are the two arresting emotions that have to be purged in tragedy. Every tragedy involves a catharsis. It, 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 it involves the undoing of those, putting away fear and pity because they can be arresting. And the source of most enabling in families is pity. We're so overcome with somebody that we feel sorry and whatever we do keeps those people in that position. We've talked about that, okay? So here's, is everybody okay? Any questions so far? Here's my question. I've got a, I've got a couple of questions here and they're going to get to Mary in a second. Ivan, <coughs> Ivan's Grand Inquisitor describes a condition which in Yvonne's mind is an exact description of the Catholic Church. That the Catholic Church has taken on miracles, mystery, authority to relieve people because the burden is too great for most people. They would rather have security, they would rather have certainty. They don't want to live in mysteries. They want to be in control. <laughs> and, 
Americans are among the most controlling people. We want answers to everything because we think um, knowledge gives us power. If we only know something, we've got power over it. We'll have control. So we don't want to live in mysteries. And, and we approach science as if it gives us all the answers. So why believe in God when science will give you all the answers? So my question is, the way that Yvonne describes it, we're, we're supposed to see that is um, the Catholic Church. And remember I said at the very beginning of our work on brothers that this Russian formalist critic said that spoken language is the measure of everything and the novels is, is a mode of knowing that involves what he calls a dialectic, a dialogue. That every, everything presumes a response, an answer, it anticipates something. So the novel is not just written to self-contain, it's open-ended. It's going to provoke things. It has a hidden agenda, what Bakhtin calls a hidden polemic. It's defending something. Remember I said, in Jane Austen's novels, her first concern is the marriageability of a woman. The situation a woman is in, in, in getting married with a man. That's the preoccupation of every one of her novels. In Dostoevsky, we've seen what the preoccupation is, this conflict between church and state and the passing of an old world and coming of a new. But in The Grand Inquisitor, he describes a condition and attributes it to the Catholic Church. So if this is a hidden polemic and it, it's saying something to engage us, I remember asking this question of you guys when we talked about church and state in the very beginning. What was your response? Is this an accurate description of the Catholic Church? And if not, why? And if it's not, how would we accurately describe the Catholic Church? Now I know that's a lot, but just focus on this one question. Is that an accurate description of the Catholic Church? If not, why? And if, yeah, if it's not, what is an accurate description? What does this tell us about Russia or Ivan? That's just a small, simple question. <laughs> okay. Chuck, sorry, go. It's not, of course, an accurate description of the Catholic Church, principally because it puts on us the burden of faith. It doesn't, it doesn't claim certainty in every Mass. You were called on to believe in faith. It's not just preached as a certainty that's beyond question. So that's, yeah. that's one thing. So that we do have the freedom. It's a burden and a freedom that's placed on us. That's the most important of it. Yeah. I know this is, is asking a lot, maybe probably too much. Can you make an educated guess? on why Yvonne sees the church that way. Just in terms of the novel, don't go outside of the novel. Is there anything going on in the novel that would lead you to be able at least to speculate on why he would see the church that way? What, sorry, what's going on in the Russian religious world? Wait, wait, wait. What's going on in the Russian world with the institution of the elders and you know that orthodoxy? What's going on there that would possibly lead to that? Disintegration. Sorry? Disintegration. They're, they're very uh, disparate. They're, they're, they're not cohesive. They're not hierarchical in the way the Western Church is. And looking at that from a distance, uh, there may be a little bit of envy there, but there's also this sort of chauvinism. He loves Russia, and, and even though he's not a believer, he loves the Church, which is 
can't separate it from Russia. And so when he looks at that, uh, he can't approve of it. He can't what? He can't approve Proof of it. it. It's in contrast to Russia. It's got to be a bad thing. Yeah. He loves his church, which is so different. Yeah. Remember, he has those lines, too. He gave that one line eight years ago that the church had taken over those cities in Italy, and that was just a sign of the way in which he reinforced his idea, his belief, that Catholicism um, is the, ch the state absorbing the church into itself. So the state has taken all, on all these powers. So he looks at Rome as... Um, um, statist. I think the term is um, seropapist or papism. It's, it's, Ciro, it's Caesar taking on the role of the church in governing. So that was a very serious prejudice in the Russian people that, that Rome was statist, that it, because of the church, con we've, we've gone through all this, the church state conflicts that Rome, that Rome appointed, um, seemed to have power to appoint um, emperors to crown them, to excommunicate them. So it assumed all these state powers and it was evidence to the Russian mind, particularly if it's, and I think Chuck's description is right on, that it's dispersed, it's disintegrated, you know, people are isolated, there's not a collective consensus about things. Um, any other thoughts about Anybody else? Remember, there are present peasant revolutions all over Europe. All of Europe is, every nation practically in Europe is at war. And people are rising up asking for a constitutional form of government, Republican forms of government to replace monarchies and despotic powers. Listen to this. If you can, if I'm going to maintain, if, um, if this is an image of the Catholic Church, um, it's why people like it, because it relieves people of their burdens, right, of mystery, uh, miracles, and authority. If the Catholic Church is, as a matter of fact, embodied that its whole spiritual stance to the world was to protect those because it was a part of the life that Christ passed on, so it's asking of people that people be more accepting of mystery, miracles, and authority, what would be the response of people to the Catholic Church? 
Sí. Or they would hate it. Here, follow me. If people like the Catholic Church because it's taken all these burdens off of them, and in fact what's true is that the Catholic Church is not like this, that as a matter of fact it embodies them and asks this of people, the general response to the Catholic Church would be hatred. It's asking those things that it, people don't want to do. Right? If A is this, then not A is... Or the opposite of A would be this. Is everybody following me? This is ironic. No, Mary? If everybody likes the... Yes. Here, let me put it differently. Yvonne said there was there's a small group of people who'd be willing to follow Christ. All right. Asking of them mystery, miracles, and authority. Those three, right? There's a small group. But by and large, most people didn't have the strength to do that. So were they glad to turn it over to the church? Turn it around now and make it the opposite and say that the church actually embodies those things. There would be a small group of people who would follow them, but in large, people would hate it exactly for that reason. Because people would say, that's not the life I want. I don't want to be told what to do. And I don't want to live in mysteries. I want control of everything. And don't make me believe in miracles because science tells me otherwise. Is everybody following? The, there's a great irony to this. Is everybody following? I, I want to take a minute if everybody's not clear. Yvonne's saying, this is the Catholic Church. And everybody loves it because it takes these burdens off of people. Turn it around. If, as a matter of fact, the Catholic Church embodies those things, tries to carry Christ forward, then a small group of people will follow. The large majority of people will hate it. So to clarify, it would seem that Yvonne's charge is that the church doesn't allow for freedom of conscience. It doesn't say, here's what we present, we hope that you accept it, but you're, good luck with that. If they, if they used your authority to insist on it, that would be a different thing, and that's what Yvonne is charging them with, and in fact, it's not. You know, is that... Is everybody following? Because it goes to my next question. Is everybody following? It's really ironic because when I read that, I, I, when I've read it, every time I've read it, for as many times as I've read the novel, I keep reading it and I think, that couldn't be farther from the truth, that his description of the Catholic Church is not that way at all. In fact, it embodies those things. This and it's, context is important here because the Church was, for most of history, a very conservative force. I mean, even as late as the French Revolution, they were not on right. the rebel side, you know. And the one thing we got straight in the religious wars uh, it was really, it hammered out this idea that uh, the man's relationship with the church was a matter of individual conscience. It wasn't all that way. It wasn't that way throughout history. So maybe Yvonne is looking for the time when there were this very conservative force that were lined up on the side against the revolution. Yeah. I think it's a more universal thing that it's, because he's dealing with first principles, church-state relations, and um, whether the state should absorb the church or whether the church should absorb we're going to get to that with um, Zosima in a second. Is everybody okay on this? That Yvonne's presenting a picture of the Catholic Church that I think in reality is opposite of what it 
is. There's a strong prejudice against the Catholic Church. I don't want to go into this. We've, if you read Dante, remember, 90% of the people in hell were Catholics. The, and, and a great majority of them were popes. You know, there, because there has always been this struggle between church and state. The whole Middle Ages was defined in terms of that struggle, so it's nothing new. Um, so here's my question, and I, I sorry, go ahead. And follow God and turn from the devil. That was too much. That was too burdensome. Too much trouble. So if they wanted somebody else to produce miracles, they wanted somebody else to deal with the mystery. They wanted somebody else to provide the authority. Is that all right? Yeah, I would have. I mean, yes, Doc. I mean, the one thing that I would tripped over is how'd you put it? Provide miracles. It's they wanted. They wanted to be relieved of these so that somebody else would be the arbiter of all those things. So instead of living with uncertainties, the church would bear them, whatever the circumstances. I mean, it's abstract. If there was a question of a miracle, the church would decide it, nobody else. It's the, 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 I think the fundamental point that you're making is to the point. Um, Yvonne is saying that the burden of that freedom is too great for most people. Even if they want them, and he said they want them, the burden is too great. They want to be relieved of them and turn all the matters having to do with those things to somebody else. And that was his description of the church. It was also his description of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the question, Doc? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that that's safe, but. Does everybody follow? Right. 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 People would say, "Well, that's the police's job." Right. And then other people would say, "Well, if you go to your neighbors, you might get shot." And then somebody said, "Well, just get to know your neighbors." neighbors. Yeah. You know, so the people right. have all kinds of yes. stupid, out of control yes. opinions, and so and excuses. Yeah, and so you know, to me, get to know your neighbor in the daytime, so you're not afraid of them at night. Right. <laughs> No, it's true. That's how I look at it. Yeah. People, so many people say, just call the police. That's what they're there for. Right. Right, right. And so people don't want to take the other. Right, right. They don't want to bear the burden. Yeah, they don't Wait, and if I can just back that up. When we moved here, we had a house in California that, that we turned over to a management company. To, 
And I, I never was ease, I, ever, ever at ease with that because I said to Suzanne, I don't, I don't like being at a distance concerning something that we're responsible for. A couple of years into that, we got a call from the neighbor who wanted to sue us because there was a, one of those wind things on the roof that was making noise when the wind would go through it at night and he was calling the police and the management company wasn't taking over and I must have been an hour on the phone with this guy but the whole time I was commiserating with him because if I had been there I would have been and, and so much of the of the entrepreneurial world that we the capitalistic world we live in today involves a distant um, investment so that we're no longer immediately responsible for something in front of us I mean it just goes to your point and I want to I want to go off is everybody fine is everybody understanding Yvonne is saying this is what the Catholic Church is for those reasons I think the opposite is the truth that as a matter of fact um, the Catholic Church asks individuals to be responsible for themselves so it tells people not to do some things that some things are wrong that they're sinful and they're you know there's going to be consequences and mysteries are a part of their life and to live with them all of that okay here's my next question so I think there's a general prejudice against the Catholic Church and there's certainly a prejudice against the Jesuits and that was a prejudice long-standing I mean the Jesuits were always known for being well-educated and knowledgeable and using their reason for twisted ways and that was just a prejudice that you know got carried through the Middle Ages into the modern world so Yvonne's presenting us this picture and it's I think it's hard to come out of those scenes without feeling that what drives him is pity and that pity is profound that's the way he sees things and I've asked everybody to hold on to this remember when we were dealing with Portia and Helena but Portia particularly in her mind when Antonio was going to be killed she could have responded with pity and just been overcome with pity her husband's going to lose his best friend that is not what happened to her or Helena so we have very different images of woman in Shakespeare than we do of woman in Dostoevsky or man okay so here's my next question I just want to take a minute with this um, Mary's daughter says to her you and your old Catholic ways give them up and I'm assuming from so much of what we hear that young people today are saying that to their parents if they happen to be Catholic and I, I know more more than a few Catholic parents in the work that I've done in you know with St. Francis and here what kind and I'm saying this on if everybody could just screw down a little bit what would be a good answer for Mary or any of us if our kids had approached us with that attitude and they said are you kidding wait wait as a matter of fact let me take this a step farther it seems to me and we're going to get to this in Zosima because it's one of the troubling questions I've got about this whole section it seems to me that what Yvonne is describing in the church exactly describes socialism you take all these problems bread earnings food medical care authority and in order to be relieved of those problems because they're burdensome and distribute things with the idea that if you do it's going to take away all crime because 
Zosimov says and Ivan said, we are at a point where individuals are no longer responsible for their actions. It's the social world, the injustices of the world you grew up in. So change the system and you'll do away with all these problems. So implied, in, I'm going to argue, some of you, if you, if, you, if you disagree, let me hear your disagreement. His description of the Catholic Church is an exact description of socialism. We don't want to, we don't want to have these things, authority, mystery, miracles, take them away. Because they leave us in a world of uncertainties where the burden for us is too hard. We want to be relieved of them, so we're going to turn them over to somebody else. That's an exact description of socialism. And I'm saying flip it because the Catholic Church is exactly the opposite. It's saying pick up these burdens because the human person is responsible for himself. We've got our God. It involves us in authority, mysteries, miracles. That everything's not the way we want it. We don't have control of everything. Is everybody following? So in one sense we can say this is already pointing to socialism. The whole argument assumes it. If somebody were to come up to you and, 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 and respond the way Mary's daughter did or anybody, if any of our kids, what would you say to them? What answer could you possibly give? I know this is going back to our apologetics, but it seems to me it's, it's very much implied in what's going on here. And we're going to meet it again with Zosima in just a few minutes. Is everybody following? I want a, I want a simple answer. What, what argument, what simple thing can we give to somebody who looks at the Catholic Church and says, are you kidding? Get rid of it. If we got rid of the Catholic Church, describe the world we'd be like. What do you say to somebody who takes that position? Go ahead. Because what? My faith is my pearl. Pearl. Found a pearl of great price. And, and, and it's love, you know? And it's, it's, you can't say much because it doesn't matter what you say. They but they watch you. And then when they have problems, if their neighbors are not Catholic, and then I've run into health issues, and they've come back to me and asked for information to come back to the church. I think it's just an example. I don't know that a pearl would. I don't know that people would be persuaded by that pearl, but Michelle, no, did you? Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, just the Catholic Church is, um, you know, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be any hospitals, there wouldn't be any schools. I mean, I mean they've done, the Catholic Church has, has helped people so much with education, with hospitals, with all of that. Start with Suzanne's comment a few minutes ago and all the things that we put together. If what's at issue in this Grand Inquisitor chapter is human freedom and Christ gave us that burden and it involved us in his world, a divine, a whole other order of causalities, not our order of material causalities. If I kick this table, I'm going to injure my foot. 
It's not that order of causalities, right? It's another order of causalities. The causalities of the Spirit, what He does with God and Christ, and miracles come into our world. We're involved with mysteries. If you start with what Suzanne said a minute ago, and you take the central issue is freedom, that Christ wanted us to be free. So, He's saying, the only way you can be free is through our church, because without it, you're going to be a slave to your own sins, you're going to be a slave to whatever political system you live in. It can be socialism in Russia. It can be what we are trying to claim today as a democracy in America. You know, you're going to be a slave to these things. You, you may want to go along and say, well, we're free. But if you look at your actual life, your sins, your passions, your addictions, the interpersonal problems we always have, I'm saying start with that, what Christ gave us, and said, the only way to protect that freedom is through the church. And somebody says to you, get rid of the church. I want a simple answer to that child. What do you say to that child rationally? In terms of, because that person's a product of an education today. It's not Gregory. Well, you're right. It depends very much on who you're talking to. But um, you're wrong about one thing. There's no simple answer. But uh, here's an example. You're talking to a child and the way I do it is I say... I don't know, say it's my daughter. Okay, Holly. <laughs> there's a, there's, it's entirely possible that the 15-year-old Holly is wiser than the 15-year-old Chuck was. So it's also entirely possible that when you're 61, the 61-year-old Holly is going to be much wiser than the 61-year-old Chuck and no more. I hope that's true. But it's a pretty safe bet that the 15-year-old Holly doesn't know as much, or hasn't thought as much about these things, or isn't as wise as a 61-year-old Chuck. So at first, it sort of appeals to authority. So that's at one point. So what makes you so sure it isn't true? Well, it should be true. So just reverse the burden. I don't have to prove why the church is good. Why are you rejecting it? And then so that, that's the first, the first way to go. So they, they have the burden of proof, I think. They say, why don't we need that? Well, what, are the, what things do you value? You know? Do you value your liberty? Do you value the equality? Where did those ideas come from? Put yourself back in pre-Christian any culture. Chuck, take that just that one thing. If you because because I right now I hope every I'm asking for more than um, an appeal to authority. Hold on. If you said do you value freedom, if you said that to a 15-year-old or a 25-year-old, who wherever the child is. If you said, do you value your freedom? If you just stayed within the context in which I'm presenting it, you've got church state, and you get the Catholic Church out of it, and you're dealing with freedom, and you're saying, do you value your freedom? What can you say to that person to back up the, the implication that you're going to lose your freedom if you don't? What, what argument can you offer? You start with the origin. Where did your freedom come from? Where, where did this idea that we all have... It, 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 we all have this inherent dignity that's inalienable and that we have equality manifested very unequal in, in a lot of important ways but in the ways that we have to do with how your life is governed we acknowledge our equality where did that idea come from? it came from Christ it came from Christianity well it was there already in the pagans because Socrates had it and a lot of the great well, Aristotle except for the slaves in Athens they would take issue with well, they were arguing against it too. I mean, freedom was a real thing, even. But it is usually tolerance. I think with the young people, you know, they think that we are too strict that we don't, you know, we, we don't tolerate any of the things. So any, you know, we don't tolerate 
all the new ways of thinking that we're too closed. And that's... Answer it. If you value your freedom and somebody says, I'm not going to go to the Catholic Church because it's the... Um, it's the... Um, what the... Whatever word you're, I'm looking for that's in opposition to freedom, what would you say? Doc, what would you say to a 18, 15, eight, an 8 year old, 15 year old, a 20 year old, if, if they said, if you value your freedom, you'll leave the Catholic Church? What would your, give a rational answer why, explaining why the only way they would find their freedom, make clear how they lose their freedom without it. What would happen to their freedom if the church weren't there? Speak up, Doc. Then you're slave to whatever the culture says you should want. I mean, you're not free. There, there is no freedom of what I want, when I want, however I want. That doesn't exist. And if you make that clear, then what is freedom? Well, freedom is <laughs> well. the opportunity <laughs> to do what is right. To fulfill your nature in some way. Yeah. If 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 um, let's say somebody said, I, 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 I'm going to call this to a close in a minute, but I I hope everybody's sort of keyed on this because I think it's so crucial. Given if we're taking Dostoevsky seriously, we see that it's a novel about a change from an an old religious way of doing things to a new enlightened way, and the new enlightened way says. Um, we're promising you your freedoms. If you follow us, you're going to be free. You're, you're, you're following old traditional ways that are going to enslave you. Chesterton's book that we read, Chesterton took every one of the modern ideologies and said, every one of these produces a form of enslavement. That was his theme. Every one of them. You, you can name them, go down the list. He said, they're offered as modern ideologies. These are enlightened ways of thinking, and every one of them takes you to a form of enslavement. My answer to us, my, I mean, my question to everybody here is, what do we learn in our work on apologetics? And right now in Dostoevsky, we're facing a situation exactly like that we're facing in our country. If your children come to you and say, you want your freedom, put your Catholic faith away. What do you say to them? I've got to call this to a close. Um, if somebody said... You've always got to have a political regime. Uh, we can either have, let's say we can have democracy so we can have us. Dostoevsky's against it. He makes it clear, or if we take Zosima seriously. You have socialism. 
What would you say if somebody said, the only way we can ensure our freedoms is with socialism? What would your answer be? You're wrong. You're sorry? <laughs> Why? I know. Give a reason. Yes. <laughs> yes. And in order because socialism requires authority, it's going to be exercised over you in ways you don't like. Yeah. There's only one authority. Yeah. Because, because the, a more sophisticated answer is that because socialism runs counter to human nature, and whenever you try to impose any kind of system that is contrary to human nature, it takes violence to enforce it. That's Plato's thesis, by the way. If you don't have a political form of government that corresponds to the nature of your soul, and at the root of it is this longing for freedom for each of us to be able to love or follow the truth completely, give ourselves to it, then that political system is going to do nothing but create havoc. That's Plato's basic argument. Mary, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ann. I'm not saying that this is the right thing to say, but I actually had a similar situation with my grandson uh, a year or so ago. Tommy is in all the gifted classes. All the what? All the gifted classes. Yeah. So he associates all of his friends. He says, my friends are all geeks, and most of their parents don't believe in God. And he said, what do I say to them? Yeah. And I, I said, Tommy, I want you to think about the things that you learn about in church, the things that you have learned about God. And even if you didn't believe in God, isn't that a, a good way to live? The things that you learn make life better for you, make life better for other people. Um, because as you said, otherwise everybody is going to be in conflict because what's good for me is not going to be good for somebody else. And it's just yeah. Just I want to, Mary. I want to um, give you the last word on this. You um, keep in mind. I, I want to stop this because I want to get on with the rest of the book, but I just think it's too important because it actually goes to what's going on in the book. In a, but what we're reading is an imitation of something real. People are you know, being torn apart. Um, and it's going to get worse the next page because under so, in, with Solzhenitsyn we're looking at socialism in fact and, and you've, got a, you've got Russia in the modern world and a totalitarian state. So. The questions we're dealing with are real, and I'm glad you raised that. What you know, does it make a difference in you believe or God or not? Can we? I mean, we had a whole section on apologetics. Can we not answer those questions? Can we not say to somebody clearly, rationally, make a, an argument that makes sense to a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 25-year-old? But Mary, you have any thoughts about? You're the one that started this all. Well, about Doc. freedom. About Doc. freedom. Because if I want to come over here, I'm free to come over here and slap Mary Jo up the side of the face over here. And she's free to hit me too. But what does that do? That's anarchy. Or I don't know what that is. You know, but in, and I'm sure there's a million reasons why different people hate the church uh, or don't want to go to church or hate God or whatever, each person. With my children, or not all of them, but this daughter, 
it would restrict the way she lives her life because they don't go to church. You see, so, and she told me a couple of years ago that the younger boy is going to be three next month that they didn't baptize him. And she, she and her husband told me they don't know what's true. So therefore, they're not going to baptize their child. And I said, well, how are you going to raise this boy? And he told me, well, by the golden rule. So I calmly thought, okay. I said, what does that mean to you? And he said, well, you know, he's, I tell him to treat people the way he would want to be treated. Mm -hmm. But... You know, just on a, on a hopeful note, if, if, if somebody can admit we don't know the truth, that's, that to me is a healthier position than acting like you do and you can say, I'm agnostic because nobody can really be agnostic unless you know all things and nobody does except, it, it, Flannery O'Connor is the only real agnostic is God because you have to know all things before you can say, I don't believe, you know, nobody's in that position except him. But if anybody can start by saying, I don't know the truth, there's, there's a lot of health to that position than in somebody who says they know all the truth and you're not going to persuade them differently because you've got a, in one case you've got an open mind and the other you've got a very closed mind. I did ask her because I, I learned this from somebody else. So I said, Catherine, if you were dying, Something would you ask for a priest? And she goes, no. And I said, why not? She said, I don't believe in that. Oh. Mm -hmm. See, and I mean, that's kind of a place to start. Yeah. It's, what if you're wrong? I, See, well, I would ask for one to come in. I don't know if this helps. I mean, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. I should say this, but any, I've had a lot of experiences with people who don't like the church, don't like the Blessed Mother, and it, it always comes down to they're threatened by some authority of the church, by some, some, some form of authority or some image. It, it, it threatens them and it has hurt them. They've been hurt somehow. And, and they're, they're not really willing to talk about it. So I don't know, I mean, I don't know if that ties in with anything, but any, anyone that I'm like, you know, like, let's talk about it. You know, adults, big adults. College adults, they're just like, well, I just, you know, they're threatened by, by the church. It, it's bigger than them. Oh. It's, it's too big for them. And it's like, so they put it down. Which I took now. My, my own experience isn't, I'm, I, you know, I'm not young anymore for sure, and I'm close to the end, but um, that my experience is that most older adults um, aren't more capable because they're older than children because adults can be worse than... Um, my starting point, Mary, would have been if somebody said, or you said, would you call for a priest? And they said, no, I, you'd call for a doctor. I'd, my first line of thinking would be, if you'd call for a doctor, you'd do it because you thought somebody could help you. If there's a spiritual quality to your, you know, that's not explained in material... I mean, here's my mind again in Chesterton. If you call for a doctor, you do it because you think he can help you with respect to material things. If all you believe is matter, then there's nothing more to call for. But if you do believe there are things of the spirit <clears throat> that aren't answered by material causalities, causes, um, but is by a religious order, and you would call on a 
doctor, why, why would you not call on somebody who could... But I want to stop here. <clears throat> My reason for raising this is because what Dostoevsky is making clear is that the, the closest, what seems, he's, he's already said, he doesn't like, Zosim is going to say, democracies are bad because they just take care of the poor. And he runs down the list of um, um, regimes. The regime that seems closest to Christianity seems to be socialism because it takes care of everybody. It's going to be Zosima's argument. It's a brotherhood. Everybody gets along. Everybody's taken care of. Um, at some point you've got to answer this question, what's wrong with socialism or any political regime? If you're a Christian and you believe that all people were made by God and ultimately want to get back to him, um, what happens if you do away with the church? They're just really important questions and all of them are at, at issue in this book. Let me stop. Is there any more or is it gone? Yeah. Oh, thanks Chuck. I'm going to quickly summarize the Zosima section. Oh, that's here. I, I'll take that. Oh, this one? Yeah. Is that somebody's? No, it's an extra. I think I stole it when I shouldn't have, but I'll. No, I, I thought. I do that at home. I thought that was my drink, and I brought it back and realized there was. Here, quickly. I'm going to summarize this quick. Um. After the, um, the Grand Inquisitor scene, <clears throat> we're taken to what is in some ways the center of the novel, and it's the story about Zossum and his background. And you remember, he begins by saying he um, had a young, he had an older brother, and the older brother began in life um, denying God and opposing his mother, and then he came to a point in his life where he became ill and underwent a conversion. And um, the younger brother said he fell in love with everything and he realized how wrong he was. So it's one of those experiences of mortality that when you're approaching an end, suddenly some people have revelations and they can have a profound effect on you. And he said his brother um, realized how unfair he was and he reached a point where he found himself loving birds and animals, the earth, and he realized as well <coughs> that there was something wrong with people always serving him and his not serving them. So he began to develop the sense of a brotherhood with other people. And Zosima was greatly influenced by that. He was um, taken and um, enrolled in the army. Um, and you remember that while he's there, um, he falls in love with this woman and she rejects him and when he learns who her suitor is he challenges him to a duel. He so hates this man as a rival. In fact he's so angry before he goes into the duel that he slaps his servant and he has um, a moment of revelation where he realizes that it was really cruel for him to slap his servant that um, as a matter of fact he should serve his servants He's recalling his brother and all of this, so he undergoes a conversion. He goes to the duel the next morning and lets the, his um, opponent take the first shot. Um, and when the guy misses, he takes his gun and throws it away. 
when people initially hear about this, they, they call him a coward, but then they realize he's not a coward because he let the guy take the first shot. So he takes that off the table and people begin to be amazed at what they hear and look to him for his teaching. His teachings are basically those of his brother, that he should be a servant to people, that he should love all people. And now I want to just read some things here. Um, good at, on my book is 303. It's, it's, <coughs> it's, the, uh, it's from the life of the elder Zosima, but there's several chapters this, but he says, I'm, I'm not going <coughs> to, I can't account for the page difference, so I'm just going to have to read and hope that you'll follow. Um, he, he arouses this great curiosity in people, and one of the people who hears his story becomes fascinated with him and comes to visit him. This is a stranger. The stranger begins to meet with him on page 303. He says, Paradise is hidden in each one of us. It's concealed within me too. He says, As for each man being guilty before all and for all, because that was a principle of his brother, it's absolutely crucial that we take responsibility, that we accept ourselves as being the worst of the worst, that we're guilty of sins and we're guilty for each other's sins. And it's only in that way that we can find this experience of brotherhood. We can share in this experience with brotherhood. Remember, the, um, you all remember, this was fundamental to Melville and, and uh, Hawthorne. A fundamental principle of both of them was what they called the brotherhood of sin. Hawthorne believed that it was when people thought that they were better than other people that they looked down on them and criticized them. That's the opening of the Scarlet Letter. It was because Hester had to accept her sin that she became more sympathetic and capable of responding to other people in their sins instead of being above them or self-righteous. So this said, this, this stranger says, as for each man being guilty before all and for all besides his own sins, your reasoning about that is quite correct and it's surprising that you could suddenly embrace this um, thought so fully and he indeed and indeed, it's true that when people understand this thought, the kingdom of heaven will come to them, no longer in a dream, but in reality. But when will this come true? Uh, um, Zosimov asks. Go down a few lines. <coughs> this is a matter of the soul, a psychological matter. In order to make the world over anew, people themselves must turn onto a different path psychologically. Until one has indeed become the brother of all, there will be no brotherhood. No science or self-interest will ever enable people to share their property and their rights among themselves. No science, no self-interest. That is, i.e., no science, no capitalism, because in capitalism we look out for ourselves. <laughs> Excuse me. So, <coughs> sorry. The stranger says, but heaven is within us, we're all capable of it, only we would do this. And then in, the, um, in subsequent visits, he reaches a point where he says to Zosimov, <coughs> sorry, that he actually killed a person himself. And he describes the story of being um, so um, enamored of a woman that he went to her to prose, she rejected him, 
One night he snuck into her bedroom and was so overcome by rage that he stabbed her. And he took things, possessions, opened drawers and made it look like a robbery so the blame would shift to somebody else. And he kept those things. People are convinced that it was her serf that committed the murder. They accuse that serf and it just happens a few days later that that serf dies. So this man never has to confess his sin but it's clear that he's carried it with him all along. Even though nobody had to die for it because the other serf died. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, he says as he's grown older, he's become more respectable. He's loved by his wife and his family. But he carries that torment because it's grown more and more unbearable the older he's got. And he wants to confess it. Um, one, here, hold on. Hold, hold on to these two things now. Remember that one of the reasons people were upset with Zosima is because they thought he undermined the sacrament of confession. The priests were critical of him because they were going to Zosima and not following the sacraments. So one of the criticisms of the institution of the elders is that they were undermining the sacramental life of the Orthodox Church. This man has nobody to confess to. He comes to Zosima because Zosima has this experience about being guilty and he trusts him. That he's guilty. He knows that so he's not going to condemn him. One day he comes and he leaves and then he comes back a few minutes later and he says remember this night. He leaves and he finally, um, Zosima says, this is my page 309, go and tell, I whispered. He's saying confess this to people. The man makes up his mind and he does and nobody believes him. He even produces evidence showing that he had to have been there because he has this stuff that was taken, the keepsake and the other things, and they still don't believe him. Think about the importance of reason once again. Just hold on to that for a second. But he confesses and nobody will believe him. And he tells Zosim at that point that that night that he came back he was going to kill him because Zosim was the only man who knew about it and he hadn't confessed yet. And he said, there was a knife on the table next to you and I was going to use it and kill you. The man dies and everybody blames Zosima because they think it was because of his influence that the man got sick and finally died. As a matter of fact, they think it was because of Zosima that he told all this stuff and they accused him of going mad. Okay? So, a couple of things here. Let me put this together quickly. Zosima claims these are his claims. All men are equal in the sight of God. It's only when we're guilty for ourselves and guilty for someone else that we can experience this brotherhood. Um, nobody should judge another person. This is on page 320. It's the beginning of um, that chapter. Um, nobody should judge another person unless he judges himself guilty at first because if he does the judgment he make will be wrong. So he's saying it's only when we're in sin together when we're all equal before God that we'll enjoy this brotherhood. And he goes on to say it's only the Russian people who can do this. When the Russian people um, read scripture they will be open to it because they're Russian. 
once they hear it they'll just receive it because they're Russian and it will only be the people that will persuade atheists against their atheism because the Russian people have this inherent love of each other I think I've pretty much covered and he, he says that hell is a place where people exist who don't love and he thinks the greatest sin is suicide because if you take your life you're rejecting God. Now that's Sosimov in a nutshell and I know it's it's pretty brief but um, it leads me to this question. Zosimov is the moral center of this book, the spiritual moral center. He's like a spokesperson for Dostoevsky. Remember in the beginning the book began with people discussing Ivan's essay claiming that it would only be when the church absorbed the state that there would be any possibility of correcting criminals because they would be threatened with excommunication. It was only with that threat that they'd have a, an incentive great enough to change. Zosima supported Ivan's theory, but the difference between them is Ivan doesn't believe in God and he doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul. He was putting that forward as a practical solution to a problem. Zosimov believes in it. He believes in God, he believes in the immortality of the soul. So in these central chapters we get Zosimov's story, these principles of brotherhood and loving one another, equality before God, not judging anybody else, and the importance of scripture. Okay, that, that when scripture is read to Russians they will just believe it and live it and it's uh, through their example that atheists will be sorry, converted. I don't know how to ask this question. Um, Zosim is going to die here. If we have time I want to go to the um, next episode where um, Alyosha and Grushenka miss because once he leaves that meeting where he undergoes his crisis, where he faces his temptation, he goes home. He goes back to the monastery and Father Paisi is reading from the first, from scripture, the miracle of Cana. And as, as um, um, Alyosha is falling asleep while Paisi's praying over Zosima's body, um, he starts to dream. In that dream, the walls begin to open. He sees Cana and Zosima appears to him alive and talks about this onion. Is everybody following? The onion didn't come into the novel in, in, until the scene with Grushenka. How does Zosima know about that? Because Zosima is already dead. Is everybody following me? But he brings that into that vision. So I want to get to that, but not now. My question right now is, what's your response to Zosima? Um, how do you characterize him? Remember he's dying. He's an image of something dying in Russia. And one of the central questions that I've been putting to you for the last two weeks is, turn the page to brothers and we're in Solzhenitsyn's world. We're in a socialistic world. What do we make of Zosimov as the moral, spiritual center of this book? He's Alyosha's inspiration. And, and, actually, and actually, one of the one, it's a wonderful scene. Um, when he comes to Zosimov in his last meeting with Zosimov, Zosimov says, leave. You're to go out into the world. 
That's exactly like the moment when Aeneas meets with his father in the underworld and his father gives him his calling. You are to do this. Zosimus says, you are to do this. He receives his calling. He can't stay in the monastery. Rakatan's going to hell. He's a seminarian. He's supposed to be an image, a counter, the counterpoise to Alyosha, right? He's a seminarian. Everything he does is nasty and evil. Um, Zosima doesn't want him in the seminary. He says, leave the seminary, go out. After the, um, his dream of the vision at Cana, he wakes up after the vision. He goes outside, he throws himself in the earth, he kisses the earth, and it says three days later he left the monastery, he's out in the world. So Zosima's influence is extraordinary. He's the moral center, the spiritual center. He directs Alyosha's life. What do you guys make of Zosima? Is there, is, is there any difficulty here at all? Do we take him as Dostoevsky presents him? It's a world dying. Is there anything more to be said about him? How do we look at Zosima? Well, the one thing which you just said, I mean, he is a metaphor for a, a dying old religion, for sure. Um, something I, we haven't remarked on, it seems to me he's parodying, Dostoevsky's parodying Zosima a little bit, because he waxes utopian really, when he talk, earlier when he talks about how the, everything would be just fine with the church. Yeah. So people will be called to their conscience and then we would have to treat brotherhood. So I think he's ridiculing him just a little bit. He's lampooning him just a little bit. Boy. Chuck, can you hear that? The, 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 I, I, I'm, I, I'm not using your language, but I'm having trouble here that I've never had before. Because the way he's presented is so touching, so tender. I don't hear a note of satire. But when I look at Zosima, I'm aware that everything he's saying is pointing to socialism. That this is, it, it isn't here yet, but it will be. So your word, I, I thought, was a perfect, there's something so utopian about this religious view, and it's a serious question. It goes to my question. I'm going to be f blunt here, and I sh shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. My question has been plaguing me for weeks. Turn the page, and we are in Socialism's world. So it's already here. Where are there signs of socialism? I can't find it anywhere except in Zosimim. And there's nothing in him except holiness, piety, goodness, love. But it's, it's like if you read the Acts of the Apostles, you know, when they will sell everything they have, you know, and they will live in a community, and the people who have, you know, um, states will sell them right. and give the money to the, uh, right. to the apostles, and they will give it to everybody by their needs. Right. You know, it's the same, I think it's kind of the same thing. Okay, okay, then the, the way, okay, okay, how to, I'm trying to be really careful here. The Acts of the Apostles was a description of a holy life. That to be an apostle of Christ, to follow him, is to do this. So presumably religious orders should do that. Can that be a model for the rest of the world? Or, or even to put it more, more bluntly, is there anything what Christ said that would lead us to conclude that he approved of theocracies as a way of life for people in general. So if we say that the, what you're describing is, the, is the, um, a description of the life of the apostolic life for priests and religious, that that's the way they should, so they make vows and 
but is that a way for the world of Caesar when he says given to you know yeah um, are we supposed to take that way of apostleship for the apostles as an example for the rest of the world is there support in that for the Bible or not um, is everybody following the, the line of questioning? Because Zosim is, is such a holy man. He's such a good man. And he's saying to Ali, ironic, I don't, I don't hear a note of satire anywhere. But I can't look at him without thinking, um, is this behind what is about to happen with Solzhenitsyn? Zosim is dying. He's saying to Alyosha, get out of the seminary, leave the monastery, go out into the world. Is his way of life sufficient can it define a political order? Because the, the, the one of the fundamental differences between East and West is on this matter. The West has always believed in a natural law tradition. You can't impose a theocracy on all people. You can't make people like Islam or, or New England in, in Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. You can't force people to believe in God and still protect their freedom. So what's the difference in the West between the apostolic life, religious orders, and the political orders? And what's going on in here in Russia? Is it different? <clears throat> Is everybody following? Yeah, for one thing, it was imported from the West. It didn't grow up in Russia. They're Marxist German. So um, the, the socialism, the, the answer to your question really is, depends on history, because you have to examine the facts. So. The, we can like Zosima because the motivation, if you can call it socialism in a way, I suppose, is pure. It's, it's holy. It's, it's a good thing. I mean, uh, but that's not the socialism that eventually. And the reasons for it were very different. Utopianism. Can you speak up, Doug? Sorry. Utopianism is, is an ideal. It's, it's never been realized. It's never been realized in a political, um, secular right. form. It's utopian. Zosima is a utopian thinker. The, the entertaining of utopian ideals is maybe sometimes admirable. The imposition of it is hell. Always. Yeah. The interesting thing for me, just uh, I'm going to stop this in a second because it's, it, it, to me it's such a difficult matter. The way Dostoevsky presents Zosimov is he's a holy man. Zosimov has, n nobody in Russia has the experience of a natural law tradition growing up organically the way it's true of the West. I've been making that point. They don't have Plato and Aristotle. It's not a matter of the, the women in Shakespeare's plays use reason in an amazing way. Portia, Helena, we saw that. Um, we've got a philosophic tradition that values reason. It shows in manners. It shows in a philosophic tradition. It's behind us. We've got apologetics. We've got C.S. Lewis and Chesterton. Um, we've got Dante. Could Russia have ever produced a Dante? We, we've entered into Russia, which is an Eastern world that has not grown up under the influence of these Mediterranean ideas, Greek and Roman. The two models for us are Greece, democracy, and Roman, a republic the way of um, Socrates or Athens, the way of um, Rome. Sorry. Those are our tradition. Those are our roots. They're a part of our heritage. We started out with that. Russia never had that. Russia never had that. The, the axis of power, remember, goes from Rome to Constantinople, 330. From Constantinople to Moscow, 
at the con that was the 15th century when Constantinople centered. That's 16th century. Moscow is the new, that's the new axis of power. And Peter called himself the Tsar, Caesar, who was the new Rome. So they're trying to acquire, they're trying to step into a modern world with all these influences without a tradition behind them. So Zosima has grown up in, in Holy Mother Russia. He's pious, he's good, he's holy. He's, I, I find nothing satiric about him at all. He's, he's meant to be a religious figure for us. And yet, and, just, and Adio, he's sending Alyosha out into the world to convert the world. If I can, this is, I, I, I'm flirting, on, I'm really out on dangerous ground here. Chuck's description earlier, I can't remember, disintegrated, wasn't, but diffuse and there's another word I can't. But Chuck's description of the Orthodox world, remember, there's no central authority, there's no pope. Um, the sacraments are being undermined. The Orthodox people, I, I, I grew up Orthodox, and I'm, not, I'm putting this together now, going back and shaking my head in what I'm seeing. In an Orthodox world, nobody took, the, nobody took the sacraments, nobody took communion. When I returned to the church when Suzanne and I married, we went back to the Orthodox church. We were the only couple that took communion on the weekends. You don't take communion because to take it you have to fast and you have to confess, which meant nobody was doing confessions. Nobody was taking the Eucharist. You've got a disparate world. You're diffuse, I can't remember your word, but disconnected. You know, the monks are separate. There's, they're not unified. The sacraments are not practiced. The institution of the elders, this tender, um, mode of communication between elders, holy elders like Zosim and others is the way of the Russian people. There's no bureaucracy, there's nothing unifying it, and one of the criticisms of the Catholic Church in the West is it's too bureaucratic, it's not personal enough. In Russia you've got everything is personal because there's this intimate contact between people and monks just as we saw with Zosima in the opening chapters. But there's no consolidation, there's no unity, and you've got this holy person dying, and Russia's on the verge of what? So we've got a novel showing what's happening to a people who are losing an old way of doing things. And one of the things I think I'm trying to stress right now is that we're in an Eastern world. It, 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 um, it bears comparisons with our own world because we're undergoing the same sorts of things. But one of the things going on in the West is that we have a strong philosophic tradition, a strong tradition of reason, Socrates. Um, who's the great Roman orator? The Cicero, Boethius, Augustine, Thomas, all of them defending reason. One of the great things, in, at least in my approach from the beginning of this, is to do everything that I can to help bring faith and reason together because in the Orthodox world reason is undermined and in the Protestant world is looked at as bad. The natural world is evil. So is reason. The Catholic Church is the only... So one of my things is if somebody came up to me and said turn away from Catholicism, I said, the only place in the world in which you're going to get both those things together is the Catholic world. Lose that. Tell me where you are. 
One of the most important things we can do in defense of our faith is get reason and faith together and integrate them. Grasp the arguments, hold on to faith, make them clear because we're in a world in which we're undermined on two sides. Orthodoxy on one side and Protestant world or the secular world. And interestingly here, we're, being, we're, read, we're reading a novel in which all of that is being lost, that old way of being lost, and what are we getting? Communism, socialism, totalitarian state. One of the great threats to the modern world. Let me stop. Any, any, any comments or rebuttals or whatever you want to offer? I'm, I'm, I really feel out on a limb here because I felt so bound with every work we've read to stay in the text. And I believe this stuff is in the text, but it's so buried. It's something teachers are, and teachers are not going to go to the questions that I'm raising, but I think it's crucial to raise them. Any questions or comments or... Zias is, or Zosima is a holy, good, good man. He can't be, we can't take anything away from that man. He is a good, good man, a holy man. But we're watching a culture disintegrate. Something's happening. We're in the middle of a crisis. And what comes out of that crisis is nothing like the world. Well, this is the amazing thing. It's exactly like that world. Turn inside out. Every one of Zosima's descriptions is of socialism. Brotherhood of men, all people equal, we're all getting along, it's brotherhood. Yeah, but his brand of socialism was is God-centered. Whereas socialism today is power-centered. Yes, state-centered, secular. Zosima, I hope I'm clear here. I don't I just am so wary. Zosima is not espousing socialism. He knows it's an evil. I'm just saying, ironically, everything that he values because <laughs> implies that as a political counterpart. That is not what he wants. But I just think there are levels of irony here, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I have no sense that Dostoevsky was aware of them. The Russian people are a great people. They have this holiness behind him. He believes in the people, not bureaucracies, not these enlightenment leaders. He believes in the holiness of people, but they don't have the protection in what I'm calling the natural law tradition or the philosophic tradition or the tradition of reason. What's happening to reason in these books? Give me an example of, of anybody who's able to use reason in a solid way. Everybody misinterprets misinterprets everybody else. Look at the, 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 the amazing chapter when Smirjikov meets with Ivan. It's really nice to talk to an intelligent man. He keeps saying it's really nice to talk to an intelligent man because he thinks Ivan is up to everything that he's doing. And if you, I don't want to give it away if you don't know. Smirjikov is doing something nobody knows anything about. He's convinced Ivan understands it all. It's nice to talk to an intelligent man. Smirjikov's got it wrong. He doesn't know Ivan doesn't have a clue. And Ivan doesn't see what Smirjikov's doing. Um, the family over this stranger, when he says, here's all the evidence. 
They won't believe him. Over and over and over again, we keep seeing people who, who make clear that reason is Dostoevsky sees it, is untrustworthy. That's not the way we look at reason in the, in the West. Although, Chesterton, Lewis, I would say, the way we've come to use reason in our world is horrible. But one of the things that makes C.S. Lewis and Chesterton so great is they show what reason can do when it's healthy. It can answer all these misuses of reason. But for Dostoevsky, reason by itself seems dangerous, not trustworthy. Holiness, love of God, are. So there's a problem here at the center of this novel. This tension between faith and holiness and reason. Is everybody clear on Connie? Mary Jo. Oh, God. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to just have to let you guys stew in this. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful tension here. Dostoevsky is showing us an old world going, very distrustful of reason, the rationality that's coming from the West. Hmm? It's like a Yeah. No. Beautiful place. Yeah, I, I flew there twice, and, and once in the winter, and it looks just like this. And uh, once in the summer, and I tell you, the book, it's just it's a different people. Very, She's very, very intense kind of, and you can tell it's kind of a little culture, and people are very summer. Um, yeah. One of the least joyful places that Funny. Funny. And you see the, the darkness that you Funny. I was telling Bob before class, Suzanne and I were watching, um, what's the, Transporter. Transporter. I like those movies. There's Transporter 1, 2, and 3. It's this, what's his name? Stratham. Stratham, Stratham. yeah. He's a transporter. He's just this tough, tough guy. There's a French lieutenant who, who, who keeps on because he knows that Stratham's doing something he shouldn't be doing. He's delivering these packages. And, but he, this French lieutenant is investigating this stuff and he's in, the, I think he's in a car with Stratham and saying something to him. And at that point, Stratham is dealing with one of his packages, which happens to be, I think, this beautiful, sexy Ukrainian woman. And um, so there's a whole other subplot with that. But she's there and the lieutenant is alluding to that, that Stratham is now, what's his name, Frank or? Frank has got himself mixed up with this Ukrainian beauty and this Russian and, and he said, I can't remember, but he says, oh, oh those, something about Dostoevsky and all those unhappy people that you can't, re you can't read Dostoevsky without feeling that everybody in the book is unhappy and miserable. Okay, we're going to um, not meet next week. When we come back, we're going to look at what happens between Alyosha and Grushenka, and then we're going on to Dmitri because remember he's the backbone. The, the whole thing is going to move towards him. He's going to be accused of murdering his father and then we're going to have to confront the fact that everybody's using reason to accuse him. Everybody thinks they're right 
and we have to see what happens.